you know.
of a day. Of a day, Toto Samzu, to another episode of Fanatsu. Today's episode of Fanatsu comes sort of with uh, with with some sadness. Because this week, um, if you are tomorrow, if you um, if you care about the fate, the future of the Chamorro people, then this week there was some bad news um, in terms of sort of what lies ahead for the Chamorro people. And that is what we are going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the the Davis decision, the affirmation of the of Davis's victory in federal court. And so, in honor of Michael Lohan Bavakwa, I am your host, um, as usual. And so, I have a special guest today. But before I introduce him, I'm going to have him sit there while I talk about him for a little while. I dispense on that. Gonna do it. I want to remind everyone first before we get started that. You, those of you that watch, those of you that support, especially through Patreon, all of you make this possible. Um, and so remember that if you like Fanatsu, if you like what we're doing, if you want to support us, then please, by all means, uh, go to patreon.com slash Fanatsu, and you can sign up and you can become a patron. And for $1, $10, $15 a month, uh, you can increase the quality of our production. Um, you can make it so we can get more equipment. You can do it so we can do a lot of fancy things and find more ways to give you guys news and information. And so don't forget, patreon.com slash Fanatsu. Remember, after every episode, we usually record extra content, and you can only get that extra content, like the Secret Guam History Podcast, Radical Readings. You can only listen to those podcasts if you are a patron and supporting us. Last week, I... What, last week, what was the story that I told? I can't remember. I'm, I'm Esta Bihu Zunai. I'm, I'm already Esta Bihu. And so, uh, anyways, I think uh, last week we were talking about a Magalahi, an ancient Magalahi who fought off a squad of Spanish soldiers. Um, but if you wanted to know more about who he was and what he did, sign up as a patron and you can listen to that. And the week before that, were we talking about Pido, Pido Santos, epic story, epic story. And so, but you can hear those stories if you sign up as a patron. All right, Sidzus Masi now. Magovzu, Gov Magovzu Pogu, San Bani Dosuna in the Bekumbida Estina Tautaguini Padre podcast. My good friend Ed Alvarez is here. And um, Ed Alvarez, we have known each other um, for many years now. Uh, we've worked together, we've been on many trips together, we've had a lot of good conversations, and we've done a lot of outreach um, around decolonization and so on. And so Ed is the former executive director of the Commission on Decolonization. He served in that position when we didn't have a lot of money, when there was, all, when there was very little support, um, when he was paying for his own trips to go to places like the United Nations, uh, when he was basically by himself, a one-man show, keeping sort of the educational outreach alive in every way he could. And then he was also very helpful in pushing for the, the Calvo administration to, to, what is it, give you doing less, put your money where your mouth is, that uh, Governor Calvo had made statements that decolonization was important to him, and Ed was instrumental in, in reminding him that if that's true, then... You know, put your money where your mouth is. Put some funds so that we can actually educate. And so, Toto Champu who agradecina ibidanyasi Ed, because a lot of the work that independent Guahan does nowadays, it was started um, through the funding. 
that sort of the commission uh, under the Calvo administration was able to provide. And so, Ed Sidus Masi, of Magov Zunai, Nagagal Guini, Bifanging Yoni, Dosna Azuzi Leo. Sidus Masi, Parelo, Dosna Azuzu. And so, um, and so, uh, first off, one of the interesting things uh, that, that me and Ed share is that both me and Ed were uh, subpoenaed by Dave Davis when he first sort of, uh, when he first filed his lawsuit. Now, there was a long list of people that Dave Davis said he wanted to subpoena, but the judge at that time told him, this is too many people. I, there was more than 40 names. And so the judge told him, narrow it down. And so it was narrowed down to just a handful, less than half a dozen people. And so because at that time I was the, the chairperson for independence, Ed was the executive director of decolonization. Um, we had to meet with the attorney general's office and talk about what we were going to do. Ed was subpoenaed and he did, he did get deposed. But before my date when I was supposed to be deposed, the case was thrown out. And so... I always love hearing Ed tell stories about when he was in a room with Dave Davis and his attorney. And so, um, so Ed, let's, uh, let's, for those of you that don't know about the Davis case, you know, we're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna fill you in in this episode, but there is a law that says that native inhabitants, people who are made citizens by the Organic Act um, and their descendants, that they get the opportunity to express what they want for Guam's political future through a plebiscite. Now, people say that that means Chamorro, native inhabitants, is mainly Chamorro people, but there's also other people included in it who are not Chamorro. Davis was not allowed to register for this, for this because he was not, him and his descendants were, and his ancestors were not made citizens by the Organic Act. He filed a lawsuit in federal court. He won. Gov Guam appealed, and the Ninth Circuit this week upheld his victory. And so when I was talking earlier about, um, you know, Naguaha Trinisti Gitano, it is because the federal government is basically decides that the voting rights of one man on this island are more important than the right to self-determination of an entire people and the voting rights of everybody who lives in Guam who doesn't get to vote for president and doesn't have, but the court in its infinite wisdom says that that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, Ed, let's, uh, let's go back. What are you feeling this week about, uh, about sort of the Davis case and the Davis decision? Well, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Um, it's, it's, it was tough to begin with because we're in, we're in a venue where the, the, the cards are stacked against us, quite frankly. I mean, you don't go to your ex-girlfriend's house and talk to her about the breakup because you're in her turf, you're in her house. So you don't do that, right? I mean, you go to a venue that's more neutral, but this venue was not neutral. And I think the constitution did not care about indigeneity. They mm. didn't care about sufferance and restorative justice. They didn't care about that. They only cared about what facts surround the constitution. And, you know, they were, Davis and his lawyers were using the, the Voting Acts right of 1952, 50, um, somewhere, whatever. Mm. And, you know, that was really about the blacks in southern, uh, the, the southern states that were, they were being discriminated from voting. Mm -hmm. That's really what the, the gist of the Voting Acts right is. It's not about Dave Davis 
wanting to vote in a, an election on Guam some 200 years later or 100 years later. Mm. That wasn't what it was about. But there was a hook in that law that, you know, the court, the court decided that it does apply here. But really, the intent and the purpose of the Voting Acts right was not for us, not for the people of Guam. It was for the blacks in South, South Southern United States that were being discriminated. And mm -hmm. some of the things that they would do down there is they would say, they would ask a black person who was trying to register to vote. They would ask him, okay, uh, one of the questions was, how many judges are there in this state? And, you know, if you didn't know it, then you weren't qualified to vote. Mm -hmm. But if you did know, then the next question was, name them all. And it was so unrealistic, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, you talk about discrimination. That is so discriminatory to ask only them and not not the Anglos mm -hmm. that were there that they didn't ask those questions to. So, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I think, though, that uh, it, it just goes to show you that we're still... We're still a colony being being um, governed by a body that doesn't really have our interest in, mm -hmm. in, in, in its mind. And um, I think, though, that if Dave Davis and his lawyers are really that good, take this case to the International Court of Justice and let's see how great your lawyering skills are. <laughs> because, quite frankly, if they did, they would be going up against 80 countries and island nations who went through this decolonizing process and whose mindset is of the is such that yes people have been colonized people deserve to be you know decolonized and there's still some left to be you know to go through that process so if he's really that good Let's see how well that his lawyers can prepare an argument. No, you're, you're so right. Because even when uh, Julian was making his argument, making his case initially, he brought up, a, you know, there's international dimensions to this case. Mm -hmm. Davis's lawyer just said international law, that doesn't exist. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. That's true. You know, and, and it just depends on who you talk to. Some lawyers say it does exist and some say it doesn't. But, you know, the fact really is this. All our neighbors around us, have been decolonized. You talk about the FSM, Palau, Marshall Islands, CNMI, all of them. All of them have been, have gone through this process. We're the only ones left. It's the same thing as war reparations. Everybody has gone and gotten paid to include the Japanese Americans, to include the Iran hostages that happened many, many years after us. And it just doesn't make sense that because of our political status, we're not gonna get paid. And then now the compromise is, well, we'll pay you, or you'll get paid, but just use your own money. That's just, that's, that's ah, so yes, stupid. The war reparations issue. I think you brought up a good point that, um, that we, should, we should really be thinking more about, because <laughs> when you look at the United States, right? The United States is this country where, where they say it's a more perfect union, right? It's always trying to make itself better. And so African-Americans weren't included in the United States except as property, three-fifths of a person at the very beginning. And then people protested, people filed lawsuits. They worked so that African-Americans could have rights, right? Right to vote. They could have citizenship and so on. But the very laws and the very court decisions that gave them those rights, now the U.S. federal court and Dave Davis used to deny the Chamorro people rights. It's amazing. It is. It's 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 amazingly stupid too. You know because it is. because you know you can't give everybody around a region that right to do that. 
but you hold the one place that has military importance. Mm-hmm. And really, to me, that's what it boils down to is we're a military strategic location. And as long as we are that, they're, they're going to, you know, there's no time frame here. There's no end date on when Guam should be decolonized. Although, you know, and they're very crafty. The one thing that the Americans do, the North, the North Americans, because I don't want to upset the South Americans, because they've been, <laughs> the they've been Americans. Americans longer than the North Americans. <laughs> but the one thing they do well is they craftily make agreements that, although it seems that you have what you want in the beginning, in the end, you see you don't. The FSM's a good example. They realize that, wow, all we, all we thought we had really wasn't what we thought. And now they want to renegotiate in 2023, right? So, um, and the same with the CNMI. You know, they, they would like to renegotiate too because they're realizing now that what they thought they had, they don't mm. have, right? So it's just, you know, it, for, for us on Guam, I mean, let me just tell you this story. I was at this university in 1979. Oh God, that makes me old, right? But I, I remember Governor Carlton Skinner coming to my class to talk to us about the organic DAC. And what he said was two things that I remember very well. One thing he said was, this organic act was not meant to last forever. Mm. He said that. This was a temporary measure, and you can tell that it's temporary because of the amount of time it took to negotiate. It wasn't months and months and months. It was weeks. And the only reason why the tumor was accepted at that time is because it gave us some some benefits. But it didn't really address the whole issue of Mm. decolonization. That was one thing he said. So if the, if the act is only temporary, then the intent is, at some point, you modernize, you renegotiate, and you make it something that is going to be applicable today. And that's the problem with this act. You know, as long as we have this act going, we can't economically develop, we can't socially improve, and the third thing that's happening is we're losing it. And you look now around Guam, at the village fiestas. Who really has fiestas anymore? Not very many, especially down south. Down south, traditionally, was very, very big on fiestas. There was a big thing. But I went there last year to Mariso, there was like two fiestas. You know, all the other villages doesn't, don't have them anymore. So you can see now the indicators of what's happening with, with Guam, with the influx of immigration, with, with the restrictions on almost everything from travel to communication to banking to you name it. And any governor will tell you this, that every time we came up with a solution to try to better ourselves, the United States always snuffed us off. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in the Kabul administration, we had a large interest from the Chinese saying we'd like to come to Guam and we'd like to invest. Well, of course, you know, a lot of delegations came here, right? We met with them, they told us what they wanted to do. And then we find out that we can't get a visa. <laughs> this is what they'll do. They'll, if their delegation is coming, First of all, there's only five embassies in China. So most Chinese have to travel always to go to an embassy, wait for their turn to be interviewed, right? So just imagine a delegation of 10 Chinese 
And then they, they spend all that money, they wait all that time, and then they're told that only half the delegation can come. And usually it's the, it's the, the ones that can come are the ones who are not gonna make a decision. The executives don't get to go. Same thing as like a family who wants to take a vacation on Guam. Okay, the two kids can come, but the parents can't come. So that's, that's the things that were happening that, how do you develop something when you can't even get there? And it was exactly their response to us. Why would we invest here if I can't even get here? These things, this is one example, but there's so many more examples of how the federal law restricts us from prospering. And, and, and you know, I can, I can allude now to this military buildup. We're not gonna make money off this buildup. We aren't. The companies in the states, those big contractors, are contractors that are getting those big, big jobs, they're gonna make money. But they're not gonna leave their money on Guam. They're gonna, they're gonna take that money back to where they're headquartered and they'll pay tax there. So it's a farce, really. You know, and, and, and anyone from the Chamber of Commerce who says, no, it's good for us, it's not. It might be good for them because they might be providing some services, but on the whole, it doesn't trickle down to you and me. Yeah, that's, that's what's really surprised me lately because uh, the, the congressman, the current congressman, Mike San Nicholas, has come out hard um, in favor of the buildup, even, even saying things where he'd, you know, he thinks that it's okay if people get more poor, poor because it's, a, it's an investment. You know, it's okay if people struggle because it's part of the larger investment in our island. And then others, like the Chamber of Commerce, saying this and that. And, you know, um, from my perspective, one of the things that bothers me about that is that because there was this idea that the buildup was going to be this economic golden ticket, the island and its leaders didn't plan for anything else. Mm. We could have been... We could have been putting a lot of our attention into developing local industries, supporting the island, but instead leaders, especially those who feel that the most important thing in the world is that we support the buildup and we make it happen any, any way we can, instead of leading and instead of working to build ourselves up, they were simply talking about how we need to be quiet and we need to wave the flag, we need to be quiet and we need to support, mm-hmm. and because that's our only hope. And yeah, that's... That's what always bothers me is there's, you know, that we can, we should look at the buildup with clear eyes, right? Just like I always tell people, if you, you know, we should look at our political status with clear eyes. If you are with somebody and you don't feel like you're good enough to be with that person, then you will twist yourself into any shape imaginable to stay with that person because you lack the self-respect. So if that person says jump, you will say into what body of water and how high? And would you like me to go for an Olympic medal in terms of the jumping? Because I will do anything to stay with you. But if you have self-respect, if you have a sense of dignity, then you can look and see, am I, am I being taken care of in this relationship? Am I being helped? Is it good for me? Is it not good for me? You can think about it like a rational human being. Yeah. And it's funny because when you were talking earlier, it reminded me of the Chamorro saying, because I always teach the language through Chamorro sayings. Wow. The, the, the hilitai, the monitor lizard, gives the adzuzu its tail to eat while it's sucking the entrails out of the adzuzu. That's right. It's always a good reminder that what you were, when you were talking about the deal, yeah. you make this deal and it looks like you're getting something really special, but what are they slipping out of your pocket? What are they stealing from you on the side? And you know, the, the Manamku knew that. They mm-hmm. had a, a nice, a very visceral saying about it. Yeah. The Hilita and the Nadzuzu. 
And so why can't we have that nowadays? Why can't we sort of just have that ability to realize, are we being taken advantage of here? Is it actually good for the island or not? That's, that's a good point. And it, it leads into my, the second thing I learned from Carlton Skinner was that there was a typhoon, I think in 1949, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Aylin. right? And, and Guam was devastated. And Carlton Skinner flew to Washington, D.C., to visit with FEMA, and he was asking for aid. And the response he got from FEMA was, they're not part of the United States. I mean, how can you tell us that after you abandoned us before the Japanese uh, came in? And, and I'll tell you the truth, they did abandon us. There's no way they can say no, because my dad told me that um, military were renting homes in Aganya Heights, because it was close to Naval Station. And he told me that um, the, the villagers noticed that, where are all these people? This was two weeks before the war, before they bombed us. That where are all these people? How come, how come they left everything? They left their drawers, their furniture, their beds. And they were wondering, well, where, they, where did they go, right? In a few days, my dad was down at um, Crabus Cabras. And he noticed while he was fishing, Here, here's all these people getting on big boats. It was like, oh, what's going on? You know, are they going for vacation? But sure enough, you know, later on it was telltale that they knew we were going to get bombed. They didn't tell us, and they left. Now, that's abandonment, and that's just cold to do that to a people, right? So, you know, after everything we've suffered through, they tell us, oh, you're not, you're not part of the United States. But it was okay to take our land after the war. It was okay, you know, we were Americans now. And, and that's the thing that we have to understand right now real quick. You can't have this one foot in, one foot out relationship with anyone, with anything. Either you're all in or you're all out. And that's the one thing I was always, you know, emphasizing mm. when I went to the UN and, and when I met with officials is give us an answer. Tell us, you know, we can take bad news. We've had bad news from you all our lives. I mean, what, what are you trying to pull? Just tell us, look, you're not with us or you are. Mm -hmm. Because then if you tell us, now we, now we can plot and strategize on it's how true. to survive, right? No, that's, that's why I always tell people, you know, if you're an elected leader on this island, then be consistent about your vision for the future of the island. Mm -hmm. That's why when there was the Imagine Guam conference, I remember to Troy Torres, one of the organizers, my comment to him though was, you know, the future of Guam depends greatly on our political status. You know, if we're independent, then we would imagine things very differently than if we are a state. And, you, and so status has to be a part of this. And you have to think because if we are going to, if we're gonna push to become a state, well, then we're gonna progress in this direction. If we want more autonomy and independence, then we need to progress in this direction. But the problem with a lot of our leaders, and it's something that comes from the people too, right? Is that we feel in the middle. We are unincorporated. So we feel outside, but we feel inside at the same time. So the, the phrase I always use is we are a part of the United States, but exist apart from the United States. So you constantly feel, so on one day, Amazon will sell you something. The next day, Amazon will not sell you something. 
And so it comes down to the very sort of basic level. You buy something online on Monday, they'll let you buy it because on Monday you're an American. On Tuesday, I don't know, you're from a foreign country. And on Wednesday, you're an American again. <laughs> and Thursday, you're, on Thursday, you can, uh, you can trick the system and just say you're on a military base and then they'll send it to you. That's, that's true. I mean, you look at United Airlines from Hawaii to Guam is a domestic flight. It used to be an international flight. But they now categorize it as a domestic flight, so they don't have to give you the full international service. I mean, I can't imagine paying $1,800 to $2,200, and I'm not getting a meal, I'm not getting any entertainment, and I gotta pay for Wi-Fi. For that much money, I mean, it's just, you look at the, the dynamics of that, it's just off kilter. It doesn't make sense, right? But then, you know, at this, by the same token, we're, we're getting a $1,000 rebate from Obama, and they're not sure now if we're United States. You know, we don't know if you guys are. You're not a state, uh, you know. There's all this controversy and discussion about should Guam get that federal handout? Mm -hmm. And this is the problem that we have, is sometimes we are, usually when it's not the best for us, mm -hmm. and sometimes we're not, usually when it is the best for us, you know? And this, this has to stop. People on Guam have to realize if we keep letting it go, this way of life that we know, this Inafa Maulik, guy respecto, is going. I already alluded that the fiesta is going, the customs are going, things are going. I'm happy though that there is a resurgence, however small people want to say it is, that, that are trying to get this all back, the language, the cultures, the customs. I like that. I think that that's really a great, great thing. And I wish the United States would support us, you know? I really wish they would. I mean, if you want to give the biggest gesture back to the people of Guam for all they did, and you know what, let, let me just say, I'm not anti-United States. I do recognize the good that they have done. I do. I'm not anti. But that's, that's immaterial to me right now. What is important is the death of a culture is at stake. Our people, our way. And, and it's a unique thing for us, you know. We, we need to keep ourselves alive because once we lose it all, then on the phone when you're talking to somebody, like you're making a reservation, they won't know who you are because you sound like everybody else. And that was the thing that really got me. I, when I was young, I wanted to act American, speak American, look American. But I read this report, and I keep saying it because this was a very defining moment in my life when I read this report, and it was here at UOG. The report was called the Solomon Report, and it's very similar to the secret study that Mike, Mike knows about. And what they were doing in the Solomon Report is they sent this delegation, it was a small delegation, and they sent them back in the early 60s here, and they disguise themselves as tourists. And they asked the government of Guam for some help. They said, well, we're tourists, we wanna know about Guam. Can you give us some government officials to help us out? And so they did. They, the government sent some people with them and for the next few days, they were going around Guam, traveling, thinking, strategizing, and the whole time, under the disguise of tourists, they were plotting out how to make Guam dependent forever on the United States. And everything I read in that report 
came true. You can see the immigration, you can see the social welfare, you can see the American education. You can see, you can see that everything that they did in that report they said they needed to do was done. It wasn't just Guam, it was all the Marianas, it was the Republic of Marshall Islands, it, it extended all the way. And how this report was discovered was this guy, I believe his name was Moses Uladang. He was going, in 1972, he was going to Georgetown. And in the summer he had a job at a naval shipyard where he was, his job was, he, as a forklifter, he was supposed to take all these crates of documents and he was supposed to put it up on shelves. Well, one day he, he saw on the crate, it said Micronesia. And a guy going to Georgetown, seeing that, is astute enough to know, hey, you know, what's this? So he opened up the crate, looked through all these documents, and he found the Solomon Report. And he took it back to Palau, and he let all the leaders read it back there, and they all understood what they had. So when Palau negotiated its political status with the United States, their billion-dollar economic package at that time, and their assurance that no nuclear transshipment of waste would go through their waters was granted, because they had that you know, smoking gun, so to speak. But, you know, the thing is that they, they um, continuously, they being the United States, and as a result of the Davis case, they continued to treat us like that, like, like we are second-class citizens. And I, I do, I feel that way. Mm. I don't feel like I'm equal. When I go to the States, I don't feel I belong there. I feel I'm passing through. I feel that way. People are okay with me passing through, but I don't think people would be okay with me settling there. So, you know, it, all these things that have gone against us, and there's so much today, it's so voluminous of how we can never prosper, you know, leads me to think now that the best we can do right now until the future changes is we, we need to be able to sustain ourselves. Mm. That's what we've got to do because we're not going to prosper off this military buildup. We're not prospering off tourism because all that money from tourism and the United St and the military buildup doesn't stay here. And Mike and I have had many conversations about this, mm -hmm. that if $2 billion is coming into Guam every year, why do we have a $40 million deficit at GMH? Why are our schools so dilapidated? Why is all this happening if there's $2 billion being spent here? Well, the answer is because not a lot of it staying. It goes back, you know? Yeah. It goes back to where it came from. And that doesn't, you know, that's, 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 that's insulting to us because these hotels, these retailers from that, you know, that service the hotels, they use our land, our environment, our infrastructure to benefit themselves. But none of them leave much for us. Mm -hmm. okay, go ahead. Uh, you're, you bring up so many good points. I mean, I always tread, and we've had we've had a lot of nice comments. People sort of commenting, and and we have we've got people in Alaska, New Zealand, sort of saying half a days from their corners of the of the globe, their corners of the Chamorro Guam diaspora, and so I think um, one thing we got to remember, and this is why knowing our history, knowing the history of this place, and knowing our present status is so important, because I remember I remember once there, you know because. Uh, 
there was a Chamorro vet. He's, he since passed away. He was very in Chamorro, very into Chamorro culture. I would always talk to him. He was uh, very down for decolonization, but he was also very conservative. He liked watching Fox News. He thought that Hillary Clinton was the Antichrist. He thought that Donald Trump would be great for Guam and great for the world. And, and if some people believe that. But it was funny because he had these two ideas of, his, of himself and the world. One is that he was a vet, he was a conservative, he connected to all of these conservative ideas in the States, and, but he was also super proud to be Chamorro. And, and then around the Davis case, you know, he was talking to some of his vet friends in the States, and when he thought that they would support him, saying, but Chamorros, we gotta have a chance to say what we want. And they all, his white vet friends in the States and some of his black vet friends all said, fuck you. You don't get to take away stuff from us. We served, we sacrificed for this country. You don't get to tell us when we can't vote. And he was crushed because he hadn't really thought. So he, he had thought that his place in the United States was was safe, was comfortable, mm -hmm. was what he thought it was, right? Mm -hmm. What he absorbed in Fox News or what he absorbed and shared on the internet. Mm -hmm. and, and then when he was confronted by the fact that a lot of the people that he feels they see eye to eye actually look down on him and see him as being less because his skin is brown, mm -hmm. because he comes from an island on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's no point in fooling ourselves. I always tell people, Whoever the most attractive man or woman, like, I, you know, if I was a homosexual man, then I might imagine that me and Jason Momoa are together. I might imagine that Jason Momoa follows me on social media and that he likes all my posts and that when he smiles and there's a twinkle in his eye, he's looking at me. He's thinking of me. He's not. Not. Mm. And the United States isn't thinking about us. No. The United States doesn't care about us. We look pathetic when we expect that the United States gives a damn about us. We, we think that we are part of that story. Our story is one of a territory. It's one of discrimination. It's one of occasional inclusion and a lot of use and exploitation for our strategic purpose. And so I really appreciate you. Um, mm -hmm. You bringing that out because, you know, th that doesn't mean you should hate America, mm -mm. but you need to understand your place in relation to America. If, if Jason Momoa doesn't love me, I'm not going to hate Jason Momoa. I might, I mean, I might a little bit for a little while when I come to terms with it. Usually I use a, a woman, but Jason Momoa is at uh, Mauna Kea. And so I, I'm feeling a lot of man love for Jason <laughs> Momoa right now. Feeling a lot of uh, platonic man love. <laughs> it's a good, good, good point she made. And you know, my dad, my dad is a victim of this, of this as well. My dad thought that because he joined the Air Force in 1952, uh, and he and he joined to give back for the rescue, not liberation, the rescue of Guam by the United States because they abandoned us first of all. But the rescue happened, and my dad felt very, very obliged to give back. So he joined the Air Force, right? And we've talked many times mm -hmm. about my dad's experience with in the Air Force. My dad was under the same premise as I was. Wow, it's nice to be American. God, I feel good. You know, I'm here. Great, great, great. And then all of a sudden, he was met by racism. You know, and it was like, wow, what happened? I thought I came here to give back, and here I am on the other side of the world where I'm from, and they hate me. I mean, it, obviously, there, there, was, there was so much obvious racism, you know, and I'll give you one example. My dad, every year, 
would dress up, shine his shoes up, and dress up all in bells and whistles and go to this military ball. And in that military ball at that time, if an officer liked you, he could promote you on the spot. They don't do that anymore, but he could, right? Well, my dad went to these balls for a good five years and never got promoted. And then I asked him one day, hey, how come you stopped going? And he goes, I'll never get promoted. I am not the right color. And he told me that all the people that were below him were now above him and they were all Caucasian. Right, so, you know, that was my dad's experience. But my dad's experience are similar to this veteran that he really, really was appreciative of the Americans rescuing us. But he's now in a quandary because he sees all the things that have happened to us. And through a lot of discussion with me, he understands fully well now, full well now that, wow, what I thought was going on was really not what was going on. And that is a sheet that the United States rolls over to all of us. They, they, they roll it over our heads and we're not aware of it because most people on Guam are not aware of it because life is still okay. It's still okay, right? Still getting the food stamps for most of us, getting the welfare, life is okay. But it's not okay, I'll tell you this. And, and the indicators that I mentioned, the fiestas, the people in the streets begging for money now, right? You can see now a lot of Chamorros have left have gone away. Those are indicators that life on Guam is not good. And we are fooling ourselves if we think life really is good because that, that is a trick, that is a craft of the United States. Give them some money, give them a little bit of this and that, keep them, you know, it's like a kept woman. Just give her a little bit of money, give her a place to stay, and she's not gonna complain. But in the meanwhile, her life isn't good. Right? But she doesn't know that because she's getting some money, he's getting a place to stay. But that guy will never introduce him to his friends, will never treat her as equal. And that is really the big message that we need to take away from the Davis case. We are still a kept woman, we are not equal, and we now must strategize on how to sustain ourselves and how to get the very basic elements of our culture that make us Chamorros. We've got to strategize on how to keep it. Because once we lose it, then we're like anybody else in the U.S., no matter what nationality you are. And that's a travesty because they don't accept us. They really don't. I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but people over there will, will, will listen to your story, but if you think that they're going to give up, let you share in what they have, no, they won't. They won't. I mean, look what you had said, you know. You said that veterans have told, you know, people that, no, you know, you're not going to take our stuff away. And that's the thing, you know, the thing about being in this status is we are, ju we are jurisdictional citizens. We're not full citizens of the United States. And that's another thing that bothers me is that that Constitution was applied to us in this case, the Davis case, but we're not fully applicable to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So why do you pick and choose to, to apply something to us that is only in part applicable to us? Mm -hmm. Either it should all be or it should not be. You know, and that's, this is the syndrome of a kept woman again. You know, you, you, they've, got, they've got you confused. But I'm not confused. I know what's going on having read that report and having seen everything in the last 40 years transpire as what I'm saying. And it, it, it just, to me now, our, our, our focus really should be we're not going to get anything from them any more than we're getting. We're going to have to say, all right, what are we going to do now? 
to sustain ourselves. What are our people going to do? And those other people who embrace Guam and follow you know, the, Guam, the Guam way, what are we going to do? Because if you think we're going to prosper, we're not prospering. We're not going to prosper. Mm-hmm. We're, we, we can't sustain ourselves. That takes a lot of planning, a lot of strategy to, to do that. That's no, true. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of the people that are, that are very pro-buildup, that are very against decolonization, that are in support of sort of the Davis decision and Davis, they're driven by this idea that Guam really sucks and that we who are here really suck. I mean, Dave, Dave Davis made a name for himself just complaining about how terrible the Chamorro people are and how terrible the government is and how terrible this island is. And he gained a following from people who don't think that Guam measures up to the United States, who don't think that Guam is modern enough, who don't think that Guam is good enough. And he gained a following from those people. Now, there's, there's ways that you can legitimately express criticism of the government about inefficiencies, about corruption and so on. But there's also a way that you do it in which you push yourself down and you prop somebody else up. And that's what a lot of the people who say we need the buildup, they're pushing us down, they're propping up the United States. They're basically saying we can't do anything on our own, we need them to take care of us. Davis is the same way. Davis built his, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, for me, I get so, uh, I get so frustrated at, at all of this because if you are Chamorro and you support Dave Davis, you have to understand that Dave Davis has said that the Chamorro people are like white Klansmen in the South who oppressed black people. He is saying that Chamorros and our place in our island today is that we are like racists in the United States who prevented black people from voting or having rights for generations. I have been equated as being the grand wizard of the Chamorro KKK by people in the States. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Now, you, so maybe you think that America is the greatest and everyone should vote and so on. But do you realize that by accepting that position, you are basically destroying yourself? You are destroying your peoplehood, your culture, your island in order to be American and be a good minor minority American, you are doing that. Don't think that Dave Davis is your friend. Don't think that they're your friend. That's what you got to remember is that even if you agree on one thing or you believe in something similar, it doesn't mean that they respect you. And in fact, all of this entire case and everything is driven by a lack of respect. That's so true. And I can tell you when I was in the same room with Dave Davis during my deposition, he was cold. He was, you know, not warm at all. I said hi to him, but he didn't return my, my greeting. And all through the, the position, deposition, he was whispering in his lawyer's ears to ask questions. And I got the sense right there that, wow, you say we're racist and we're discriminatory, but I have yet to come to one of your fiestas. <laughs> I have yet to eat your food and drink your beer and take Balutan home. And I'm the racist? I mean, come on, man. You know, nobody believes people on Guam are racist. People, people know that Guam is very good at hospitality. We're very good at respect. But Dave Davis, you know, just from that experience I got in there, I could tell that, God, you're a cold, you're a cold dude, man. You know, you, you've got no warmth to you at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for, and, and I remember uh, just last night, on the news, there was this lady named Maria Kitigua. 
And she was talking about uh, her experience of the war through the Rotary Club. And she was saying that it really hurts her to think that people on Guam are going against the military buildup. And she wants to talk to them, you know. Now, I can understand her because my dad went through the same thing. So I understand that her perspective of where she was at that place in time warrants her to speak out like that. But that's not the big picture. Mm. The big picture is while they were rescuing us, they were raping us. That's the truth. Because after the war, they took all this land from people. I remember Tony Pinkle telling me that his family went down to Tumon to have a, a picnic. And all of a sudden in their land was a fence around it with a sign that said property of the federal government, keep out. And they never gave any permission. They took a lot of the best land after the war. Now, part of the organic act was, well, we got to make them partial citizens because now we can refile the deeds and get it legally. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the impetus for them giving us the organic act. That and the assurance that Guam would never become a state. You know, that, that, and that, that's just, you, you can't have a country that stands for freedom and democracy and you do the exact opposite of what you say you are. You know, and, and, and that's, that's the travesty. So, you know, this lady, I respect her perspective, mm -hmm. but her, spec, her perspective is not a bird's eye view of the situation. Mm. It's a, an encapsulation of a time in history where she was grateful that they came back. Yeah. You know, that's such a good point, sir. You can be grateful to the United States. You can still believe that the United States has good things to offer the world. It doesn't mean that we need to be forever subservient or think of ourselves as less than. You don't do yourself any favors by not believing in yourself or, or seeing yourself as worthy of being respected in life. Even if maybe you're not the greatest at, at, at whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You still deserve to be respected as a human being, as a, as a community, as a people. And so that's, you know, that's such an important point is that you can be grateful. You can still like the United States. You can want a close relationship to the United States. It doesn't mean that we have to be owned by the United States. It doesn't mean that in order to keep that connection, we have to accept being second class or being treated in these ways. I mean, at the Liberation Day Parade, I always find the Liberation Day Parade so fascinating because from growing up, I would always think that the parade would be filled with a bunch of people who would, who would be like, like super pro-American, like super patriotic. So like if I, when I walk, for example, along the parade route, I would imagine that people might throw things at me or spit at me or something. Because it, when I was growing up, there was a feeling that it's this super patriotic event. But you can see the complexity of local identity there. If you go into one tent and you, and you prompt them and say, shouldn't we be grateful to America for saving us? Then they'll say, yes, we should. But if you go in there and say, don't we deserve more than being a territory considering how our elders were sacrificed during the war? They'll say, yeah, we do. And so people, there is sort of this mixed, we're in this sort of fluid situation where we're not sure what we want. We're not sure what we're worthy of. And so, but at the parade, there was, a, there was a war survivor who came to the independent Guahan tent. He was 10 years old when the war started. Or actually, he was less. He was a little bit less than 10 years old. And he was like, you know what? I don't believe that we were liberated. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they came back, but I don't believe that we were liberated. 
And he said, you know how I know? And he said, because when the Marines found us, they didn't give us clothes, they didn't give us food, they gave us cigarettes, because that's all they had, because they weren't expecting to find people. And so he was a young child, but he saw that, and for all of his life, he served in the military for many years, but he recognized that he could be thankful and he could, he could believe in the United States in some ways, but it didn't mean he was a slave to the United States. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if the United States asks for land, you just say yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that brings us to um, that whole experience where this Davis case really is a indication that uh, you, you may have suffered people of Guam, Chamorros, but it ain't worth anything. It's okay you suffered but it's okay you don't you don't get anything from us it's it's nothing it's here there's no restorative justice and this is what decolonization is about you know if you look at the history of the world and you ask why do wars exist you'll know the first reason is nationalism it's one body politic going into another body politic and enforcing enforcing its political will. That's what was going on. The Spanish were going everywhere in their inquisition and conquering. The French were doing it. The Portuguese were doing it. Everybody was doing it. So when the end of World War II came, this was one of the things that the United States, I think it was, was it Wilson or Truman or one of the presidents said, how do we stop this kind of behavior from going on ever again? And the answer was the United Nations. And the answer was all the major powers had to list their colonies and pledge colonies, colonize them and give them their own political status so that there won't ever be this world war. Well, you know, a lot of them have done it, but there's 17 of us who have not. Mm -hmm. And another probably 30 islands who never made it to the list who are kind of getting interested in it now. But we need really for, for two things to happen And I think the people of Guam would be more satisfied and more respectful of the United States. And that is, first of all, we need to modernize this organic debt. It's it's, it's an act that was around since 1950. It's, wow. So old now. It's like driving an old, old car on the road. You know, the old car doesn't have lights. The brakes are lousy. <laughs> the paint's falling off. It's being held up by duct tape, you know. And, and, but it's not a classic car. But it's not a classic car. Bihuha. Tibunitsuds and bihu. Bihuha. Yes. Denansiho, bro. Anyway, so that's the first thing is we need to modernize. We need to come bring our political status up to where it should be and not where it was in 1950. That thing may have worked better in 1950, but in 2019, it doesn't work, right? That's the first thing. The second thing that we've got to do is we need now an awareness. We, we pushed it far, right? We pushed it far during the Kabul administration, the awareness of what political status was all about. But we need to even elevate it more so that people understand the very basic elements of what this is about. Uh, having, you know, the acumen and the knowledge base at a high level is, is, is it's, it's tough. You need, you need to spend a lot of time and you need to read a lot and talk to people a lot to get, you know, your perspective on it. But that, that thing, that awareness is so important because if everyone knows about it, it's easier to market. If only a few people know about it, 
and most people are confused about it. Like like Mike said, where I don't know if I'm American, I don't know if I'm a Chamorro. Sometimes I am, sometimes not. Then it's hard. It's hard to press the issue. You know, of of we suffered. We're not yet made whole, and we deserve it. And there's no there's no doubt we deserve it. I think we we have suffered historically for a long, long time. You know, at the hands of the Spanish, then the Americans, the Japanese, and then the Americans. But this whole thing about decolonization should not be about our relationship just to the United States. It should be about our relationship to ourselves. What is it that we want that makes us feel better about ourselves? And 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 to get rid of the the sheet that's been pulled over us that life is good, but life really isn't good. I mean, if anyone really just looks around Guam and sees now what has happened here in the last 30 years, they're gonna know that the fiestas have disappeared, a lot of the customs have disappeared, the language is disappearing, they're gonna know that. They can feel that, it's tangible. And, you know, we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be embarrassed to be ourselves. And we have, for the longest time, been put on this propaganda that it's best to be American. It's best to be somebody else and not us. But that's not true. I was born in the United States. I was raised there, and I came here when I was 10, and I hated Guam. I hated Guam because there's no Sears, no Montgomery Wards, no Safeway, and no escalator. And I remember the first escalator at Ben Franklin. I just was laughing at 2,800 people lined up to ride the escalator. It's like, what's the big deal? I've been doing this for years. But, and I hated it because the milk wasn't good anyway. You know, the foremost coconut field milk was just not. But later on, I began to love Guam because I... After fighting with all my village friends, I made friends with them. We were all tight. If, if somebody had a drink, everybody got some. If somebody had some food, it was shared amongst everybody. If you needed help, they'll come to your house and help you. You know, this is the way it was. And, you know, when I went fishing and I caught fish, I gave everybody in the village. If someone had avocado, they get, you know, that's the, that was utopia. As close as utopia as you can get is everybody working together and helping each other and giving of themselves to each other. That, that's what I loved about Guam. It wasn't because they had a Ben Franklin with an escalator, it was because, man, these people here really share with you. Because where I was from, if you didn't have any money, well, too bad, you're starving. Nobody would say, hey, never mind, I'll treat you today. They wouldn't say that. That wasn't in America, where I was, or North America, sorry. And, that, and, that, and that's what I loved about Guam. So from that time to like, what was 1971 to now, I still love Guam. Guam, I don't care right now. I mean, I do care, but it's immaterial whether we have problems or not. This is the one place in the world when I come home and they open that airplane door and the humidity hits me, I know I'm home. <laughs> Anywhere else, I don't feel that way. And I love our people. I love what we were. I want us to get back to where we were where it was all giving, all helping, all cooperative. It was so, so beautiful, you know, my, that growing up really made me, it made a big indention on my life about how to be a person. So 
we're not racist, Dave Davis, sorry. <laughs> uh, and I'm looking forward to coming to your fiesta <laughs> and eating your food, drinking your beer, and please pack food for me. Uh, you know, it's only been like 30 years and you haven't had one, but uh, <laughs> please have one sometime so we, all can, we can all come. That's true. You, you know, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that uh, Dave, except for some people in the media, Dave Davis doesn't get as much praise as I think he wishes that he should. He, I believe he fancies himself to be sort of like a Martin Luther King for Guam. Like he, he fought for the white people. He really likes, he really wants Filipinos to look up to him and feel like he fought for them to protect their rights. Because he's written many times over the years and made many statements that he feels like Chamorros oppress Filipinos and keep them in their place. And that if the Filipinos would just rise up, this this island were, would be theirs. And uh, But um, he, he, he thinks of himself as like the civil rights hero. And I'm glad that, you know, when people, when he does stuff like this and people don't give it to him. Some of the media want to praise him like that and put him on a pedestal that he's standing up for the rights and the values of the United States. But I think many people see him for what he is. He's, he's somebody who is a fundamental racist. Um, he has made many statements which are white supremacist. Um, he really believes sort of that sort of the white Anglo-Saxon European civilizations are the best in the world and that sort of their presence should be protected in Guam against sort of the, what the brown people do and what the brown people think. He's made for years stuff like that. And you have to think because this is what we see with Donald Trump, right? I always say... Donald Trump has been such a blessing for decolonization in Guam because he shows a face of the United States that a lot of people here don't like. Because mm -hmm. if you're white in the United States, then you, no one has probably ever told you to go back where you came from. But Chamorros have been told to go back to wherever they came from. Like I've been told to go back to wherever I came from when I lived in the States. Mm -hmm. and, and people still tell me that on Guam. Mm -hmm. which is weird because I'm from Guam. But anyways, I saved money on that trip, but I didn't get any frequent flyer miles. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but so we got to remember this. Like Davis is showing us the face of the United States. Is that, and it doesn't have to be the face for the future, right? We see other forces in the United States which are pushing for diversity, inclusion, tolerance, respect. There's forces in the United States which would support Chamorro self-determination. That's true. That's true, you know, and, you know, I'm glad you said that about Dave Davis trying to be the Martin Luther King of himself. Anyway, uh, you know, to that I would say, you know, I don't think he can hold a candle to what Martin Luther King stood for and what he sacrificed for, 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 for black people. Um, you can tell, you know, a lot about a person by the way they, they react to you. And I've never seen Dave Davis smile. I've never seen him, for all the times that I've met him or saw him, he's just this cold guy. You know, he's not warm like a lot of us are. And even though I said hi to him, I was still happy I said hi, but I didn't get a response, you know, and that was like, wow, this is more than I thought. You know, I thought he was just angry because he couldn't vote, but now I know he's a racist man. <laughs> no, I mean, I re he has written a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I remember my favorite one was because, you know, we're, when you were talking about like hospitality and Chamorro culture and stuff like that, um, 
Dave Davis tries to argue that Chamorro culture doesn't exist or it's not, it's nothing to be glad or happy about. And then I always remember when he told the story about how he was like bringing a boat in and some Chamorros walked by and they didn't offer to help him. So a racist. And, but some Chukis guys walked by and they did help him. And so that shows that Chamorro culture is dead or it doesn't exist or Chamorro hospitality, Chamorro resiliency, it's all BS because that group of Chamorros didn't help him. That's, that's very ironic because then if, because if, I believe you, but then if, if since that's true, who was he suing? <laughs> who was he suing? He wasn't suing the Filipinos because they won't let him vote in the election. He wasn't suing the Koreans. He was suing us. So we do exist. We're, we're alive. I'm here. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay. Let's get to some comments and some questions because we've gotten quite a few. Okay. So let's see here. Okay. So one person is asking, does Dave Davis still live on Guam? And as... As far as I know, and I believe it has been confirmed, he does not live in Guam um, because it did come up in the court case because if he doesn't live on Guam, then he can't necessarily be affected by the Guam registry because he's not... If, But um, I, I believe he did get some dispensation because he says he needs to go to the States for medical stuff. So I believe he does live in the States now. So, but yes. Well, I'll still pray for him. And so there was a question, does the Davis decision mean that if people that come and work on the U.S. military base and people in the military that come to Guam as part of the buildup, that they can vote in the political status plebiscite? And the answer is, according to the federal court, yes. Yep. That the plebiscite has to be open to everybody who... Um, who can vote. But they would have to become residents. They would have to become residents. Yes. So just because if you're uh, like a, if you, if Davis is not a resident of Guam, then he, then he cannot vote even, even according to the new rules. Now, just to be clear, the government, uh, the Commission on Decolonization meets next week. The government is discussing options because just because the court system has sort of said this, it doesn't mean that self-determination is over. And it doesn't mean that there can't be another way in which sort of the Chamorro people, the native inhabitants, that they can be heard on this. And so, so don't feel like this is over necessarily. And so... Um, Here's a question. Could there have been a, could Guam have gotten a better organic act? Could it have negotiated a better organic deck? At that time? At that time, yes. I don't think so. No, and, and so that's part of the reason why you can't really argue that the Organic Act comes from the people of Guam. No. Because it was something that was drafted in the U.S., mm -hmm. and then there was a period where they got comment from local officials mm -hmm. who suggested some changes. Mm -hmm. But any idea that the people of Guam created the Organic Act, that they drafted it, that it contained what they wanted, is simply not true. If you pay attention to, if you can, there's a great article um, by Anne Hattori called Writing Civil Wrongs, 
where she talks about the Guam Congress. Mm-hmm. And these were people, and it's, it's funny, because when you read what the people in the Guam Congress were saying before they were walking out, they sounded the way that the activists sound today. They sounded the way George Washington sounded and Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. They were upset because they had thought of the United States as, as one way that it recognized their sacrifices, that it saw them and respected them. But the fact that the U.S. was taking up all this land, the fact that the U.S. was giving sweetheart contracts to former Navy guys in Guam to run utilities and government agencies on Guam, mm-hmm. there was all of this corruption and all of this abuse. And so when you look at those people uh, such as um, Conception Barrett, Antonio, Antonio Gaga Cruz, Frank D. Perez, um, Carlos Titano, they all sort of have this radical rhetoric about like the United States, how can they treat us with respect? How can we demand our rights? And so there wasn't a lot of, the, you know, the U.S. never really engaged the people of Guam. The Organic Act was something that had been created for other places the United States had controlled as territories. And so it was eventually decided because of international pressure, the desire to legitimize the land claims, um, and also some protests and embarrassment. I always, uh, re- I always remember, or I always remind people, in the 40s, the U.S. Navy, there was all of these articles about how the U.S. Navy was abusing the Chamorro people, appearing in newspapers across the United States. And that was also one reason why they needed to get the Organic Act in place, because the Navy was getting a bad reputation. One of them was called Navy at its Worst, and it talked about how the people of Guam had suffered for the U.S. They, they had died for the U.S. in World War II, and now the U.S. was stealing their lands. Mm-hmm. And so you always got to remember, that type of shame can still work sometimes. That's true. Um, when I was at UOG here in 79, I came across a document that had job categories. Uh, for example, carpenter, mason, mason, uh, you know, electrician. And there were two sets of pay scales. One set was for the Caucasians and the other one's for the Chamorros. And there were difference. There was a big difference in pay at that time. And Chamorros at, time, at that time were very upset that they couldn't be paid equally for equal work. And I remember that. I remember that document specifically saying that if you were hired by the United States, you're going to get this much. But if you were hired as a Chamorro here, you would get a lot less. You know, and that brings me to a, a good a good story about um, what's his name, Jake Cal. What was it, Jake Calvo? That he was working at uh, a Navy bank or something mm-hmm. like that, and uh, he asked. People were getting raises, and uh, I guess he wasn't satisfied with his raise, and they fired him. So he started his own, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's just a lot of history, you know, and I don't think it's important to know everything about it, but I think it's important to know some very, very basic defining moments of our history that we can understand our treatment, we can understand where we're at in this relationship, and we most of all, we have to understand that we have a responsibility to sustain ourselves because the United States doesn't. 
So we have another, we've got a lot of comments. Jesus Masino Toto Samzo. So one uh, person is suggesting that island leaders should make a bill that off-island companies that get big contracts, such as part of the buildup, should have to pay extra taxes or a certain other tax on them. And that's, no, that's exactly the type of thinking that we need is it's good the buildup as it is proposed now, a lot of people don't benefit. In fact, people just kind of get, they get the negative impacts, you know, that you're not gonna get, you're just gonna get more traffic, you're just gonna get higher prices in stores, higher rents. And so this is why we need our leaders to actually do something about it. It's not enough to simply say you love the buildup or to say you don't believe the buildup is good. As, as an island with a government, even if we're a territory, we do have the ability to force the military's hand on certain things, to sort of stall, to get, in, to get into it. And some of the things that we might propose may be inorganic. They may, but, but if you want the US to pay attention, you gotta be willing to sort of step over the line. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so we do have a Sidus Masi para Anon Historia. We're from Jess Tzatgalaf. He says, Mr. Alvarez, he says, Suze, thank you to you. It's one thing to read about the abandonment of, of uh, the abandonment of our people in books. It's another to hear the story as it was passed down. And so he appreciated your story. Um, we've got lots more. I don't know who this Tadeo Guay. He knows. He says he knows you. He says he's waiting for Panglao from you. <laughs> and so, oh, somebody, uh, I Camacho has says. I only understand a little of our language. Does that make me a bad tomorrow? No. Absolutely not. No. 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 Remember that if you don't speak tomorrow, it's not your fault. Um, there's forces that have come together to prevent tomorrows for a time of not using their language. And what we've got to do now is sort of inspire ourselves and inspire our elders to teach it, to use it, and to keep it alive. And so don't feel bad. And remember that it's never too late to learn tomorrow. It's never too late. And so Ignacio Akfazi says, speak up Tautotano Guahan. We need to get together and united. Read MLK to learn how to show your true identity as tomorrow people. I am saddened by our present elected officials. Um, and that they're not covering the actual issues. And then, and then we have another comment, somebody who says that they are tired of those who speak about activists as if it's a negative thing. This person says that activists are those who care about the retention of language and culture. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, somebody, Eru Mitchell says that this episode is guafi, this episode is fire. And Sidzus Masi for saying that this episode is fire. And somebody asks, oh, Guam Tees, where was the independent Guahan float in the parade? You know, every year, the Kulu, which is sort of like the, the main c- c- committee for independent Guahan, we always say we're going to have a float and we always settle for a tent <laughs> instead. Mm. <laughs> there was a lot of discussion about the Organic Act. And so it's, it's making me think that we may need to have a future episode which focuses entirely on the Organic Act. Uh, just to sort of talk more about it. Somebody has said, is there a current written plan about what steps we would need to take to walk us through a process of becoming independence and how would it be sustained? Ed, do you want to talk about that? Hmm. There is a model, a UN model, 
that we can use. But as long as the situation persists as it is now, um, it's just harder. It's just all the Davis Dave case made did to, did for us was just make it harder for us. And it, this this decolonization process is not supposed to be that hard. It, it's supposed to be something that the colonizer recognizes, recognizes the sufferances and suffrages of the people and commits to rectifying it. But there are always reasons why it doesn't happen. And for us, it is the military buildup. As long as we are important militarily, we will less, you know, it's gonna be tough, very, very tough. But that doesn't mean stop. That means- A live stream cut. That means-